Moonmaid, Chapter One. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter One: An Adventure in Space. I had intended telling you my story of the days of the twenty-second century, but it seems best, if you are to understand it, to tell first the story of my great-great-grandfather, who was born in the year two thousand. I must have looked up at him quizzically, for he smiled and shook his head as one who is puzzled to find an explanation suited to the mental capacity of his auditor. My great-great-grandfather was, in reality, the great-great-grandson of my previous incarnation, which commenced in 1896. I married in 1916 at the age of 20. My son Julian was born in 1917. I never saw him. I was killed in France in 1918, on Armistice Day. I was again reincarnated in my son's son in 1937. I am 30 years of age. My son was born in 1970. Uh, that is the son of my 1937 incarnation. And his son, Julian V, in whom I again returned to Earth in the year 2000. I see you are confused. But please remember my injunction that you are to try to keep in mind the theory that there is no such thing as time. It is now the year 1967, yet I recall distinctly every event of my life that occurred in four incarnations, the last that I recall being that which had its origin in the year 2100. Whether I actually skipped three generations that time or through some caprice of fate I am merely unable to visualize an intervening incarnation, I do not know. My theory of the matter is that I differ only from my fellows, in that I can recall the events of many incarnations, while they can recall none of theirs, other than a few important episodes of that particular one they are experiencing. But perhaps I am wrong. It is of no importance. I will tell you the story of Julian V, who was born in the year 2000, and then, if we have time and you get her interested, I will tell you of the torments during the harrowing days of the 22nd century, following the birth of Julian IX in 2100. I will try to tell you the story in his own words, insofar as I can recall them, but for various reasons, not the least of which is that I am lazy, I shall omit superfluous quotation marks that is, with your permission, of course. My name is Julian. I am called Julian V. I come of an illustrious family. My great-great-grandfather, Julian I, a major of twenty-two, was killed in France early in the Great War. My great-grandfather, Julian II, was killed in battle in Turkey in 1938. My grandfather, Julian III, fought continuously from his sixteenth year until peace was declared in his thirtieth year. He died in 1992, and during the last twenty-five years of his life was an admiral of the air, being transferred at the close of the war to command of the International Peace Fleet, which patrolled and policed the world. He also was killed in the line of duty, as was my father who succeeded him in the service. At sixteen, I graduated from the air school and was detailed to the International Peace Fleet, being the fifth generation of my line to wear the uniform of my country. That was in 2016, 
and I recall that it was a matter of pride to me that it rounded out the full century since Julian I graduated from West Point, and that during that one hundred years no adult male of my line had ever owned or worn civilian clothes. Of course, there were no more wars, but there still was fighting. We had the pirates of the air to contend with, and occasionally some of the uncivilized tribes of Russia, Africa, and Central Asia required the attention of a punitive expedition. However, life seemed tame and monotonous to us when we read of the heroic deeds of our ancestors from 1914 to 1967. Yet none of us wanted war. It had been too well schooled into us that we must not think of war, and the international peace fleet so effectively prevented all preparation for war that we all knew there could never be another. There wasn't a firearm in the world other than those with which we were armed, and a few of ancient design that were kept as heirlooms or in museums, or that were owned by savage tribes who could procure no ammunition for them, since we permitted none to be manufactured. There was not a gas shell, nor a radio bomb, nor any engine to discharge or project one, and there wasn't a big gun of any caliber in the world. I veritably believed that a thousand men equipped with the various engines of destruction that had reached their highest efficiency at the close of the war in 1967 could have conquered the world. But there were not a thousand men so armed. There never could be a thousand men so equipped anywhere upon the face of the earth. The international peace fleet was equipped and manned to prevent just such a calamity. But it seems that Providence never intended that the world should be without calamities. If man prevented those of possible internal origin, there still remained undreamed of external sources over which he had no control. It was one of these which was to prove our undoing. Its seed was sown thirty-three years before I was born upon that historic day, June 10th, 1967, that Earth received her first message from Mars since which the two planets have remained in constant friendly communication, carrying on a commerce of reciprocal enlightenment. In some branches of the arts and sciences, the Martians, or Barsoomians as they call themselves, were far in advance of us, while in others we had progressed more rapidly than they. Knowledge was thus freely exchanged to the advantage of both worlds. We learned of their history and customs, and they of ours, though they had for ages already known much more of us than we of them. Martian news held always a prominent place in our daily papers from the first. They helped us most, perhaps, in the fields of medicine and aeronautics, giving us in one the marvellous healing lotions of Barsoom, and in the other knowledge of the Eighth Ray, which is more generally known on Earth as the Barsoomian Ray, which is now stored in the buoyancy tanks of every aircraft, and has made obsolete those ancient types of plane that depended upon momentum to keep them afloat. That we ever were able to communicate intelligibly with them is due to the presence upon Mars of that deathless Virginian John Carter, whose miraculous transportation to Mars occurred March 4, 1866, as every schoolchild of the 21st century knows. Had not the little band of Martian scientists who sought so long to communicate with Earth, 
mistakenly formed themselves into a secret organization for political purposes messages might have been exchanged between the two planets nearly half a century before they were and it was not until they finally called upon john carter that the present interplanetary code was evolved almost from the first the subject which engrossed us all the most was the possibility of an actual exchange of visits between earthmen and barsoomians each planet hoped to be the first to achieve this yet neither withheld any information that would aid the other in the consummation of the great fact it was a generous and friendly rivalry which about the time of my graduation from the air school seemed in theory at least to be almost ripe for successful consummation by one or the other we had the eighth ray the motors the oxygenating devices the insulating processes everything to ensure the safe and certain transit of a specially designed aircraft to mars were mars the only other inhabitant of space but it was not and it was the other planets and the sun that we feared in twenty fifteen mars had dispatched a ship for earth with a crew of five men provisioned for ten years it was hoped that with good luck the trip might be made in something less than five years as the craft had developed an actual trial speed of one thousand miles per hour at the time of my graduation the ship was already off its course almost a million miles and generally conceded to be hopelessly lost its crew maintaining constant radio communication with both earth and mars still hoped for success but the best informed upon both worlds had given them up we had had a ship about ready at the time of the sailing of the martians but the government at Washington had forbidden the venture when it became apparent that the Barsoomian ship was doomed, a wise decision, since our vessel was no better equipped than theirs. Nearly ten years elapsed before anything further was accomplished in the direction of assuring any greater hope of success for another interplanetary venture into space, and this was directly due to the discovery made by a former classmate of mine, Lieutenant Commander Orthus, one of the most brilliant men I have ever known, and at the same time one of the most unscrupulous, and to me at least, the most obnoxious. We had entered the air school together, he from New York and I from Illinois, and almost from the first day we had seemed to discover a mutual antagonism that upon his part at least must have been considerably strengthened by numerous unfortunate occurrences during our four years beneath the same roof. In the first place, he was not popular with either the cadets, the instructors, or the officers of the school, while I was most fortunate in this respect. In those various fields of athletics in which he considered himself particularly expert, it was always I, unfortunately, who excelled him, and kept him from major honors. In the classroom, he outshone us all. Even the instructors were amazed at the brilliancy of his intellect. And yet, as we passed from grade to grade, I often topped him in the final examinations. I ranked him always as a cadet officer, and upon graduation, I took a higher grade among the new ensigns than he, a rank that had many years before been discontinued, but which had recently been revived. From then on, I saw little of him, his services confining him principally to land service, while mine kept me almost constantly on the air in all parts of the world. Occasionally I heard of him, 
usually something unsavory. He had married a nice girl and abandoned her. There had been talk of an investigation of his accounts. And the last that there was, a rumor that he was affiliated with a secret order that sought to overthrow the government. Some things I might believe of Orthus, but not this. And during these nine years since graduation, as we had drifted apart in interests, so had the breach between us been widened by constantly increasing difference in rank. He was a lieutenant commander and I a captain, while in 2024 he announced the discovery and isolation of the eighth solar ray, and within two months those of the moon, Mercury, Venus, and Jupiter. The eighth Barsoomian and the eighth earthly rays had already been isolated, and upon earth the latter erroneously called by the name of the former. Orthus' discoveries were hailed upon two planets as the key to actual travel between the Earth and Barzun, since by means of these several rays the attraction of the Sun and the planets, with the exception of Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, could be definitely overcome, and a ship steer a direct and unimpeded course through space to Mars. The effect of the pull of the three farther planets was considered negligible owing to their great distance from both Mars and Earth. Orthus wanted to equip a ship and start at once, but again government interfered and forbade what it considered an unnecessary risk. Instead, Orthus was ordered to design a small radio-operated flyer which would carry no one aboard and which it was believed could be automatically operated for at least half the distance between the two planets. After his designs were completed, you may imagine his chagrin and mine as well when I was detailed to supervise construction. Yet I will say that Orthus hid his natural emotions well and gave me perfect cooperation in the work we were compelled to undertake together and which was as distasteful to me as to him. On my part, I made it as easy for him as I could, working with him rather than over him. It required but a short time to complete the experimental ship and during this time I had an opportunity to get a still better insight into the marvellous intellectual ability of Orthus, though I never saw into his mind or heart. It was late in 2024 that the ship was launched upon its strange voyage, and almost immediately, upon my recommendation, work was started upon the perfection of the larger ship that had been in course of construction in 2015, at the time that the loss of the Martian ship had discouraged our government in making any further attempt until the then seemingly insurmountable obstacles should have been overcome. Orthus was again my assistant, and with the means at our disposal, it was a matter of less than eight months before the Barsoom, as she was christened, was completely overhauled and thoroughly equipped for the interplanetary voyage. The various eighth rays that would assist us in overcoming the pull of the Sun, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, and Jupiter, were stored in carefully constructed and well-protected tanks within the hull, and there was a smaller tank at the bow containing the eighth lunar ray, which would permit us to pass safely within the zone of the Moon's influence without danger of being attracted to her barren surface. Messages from the original Martian ship had been received from time to time and with diminishing strength for nearly five years after it had left Mars. 
its commander in his heroic fight against the pull of the sun had managed to fall within the grip of jupiter and was when last heard from far out in the great void between that planet and mars during the past four years the fate of the ship could be naught but conjecture all that we could be certain of was that its unfortunate crew would never again return to Barsoom. Our own experimental ship had been speeding upon its lonely way now for eight months, and so accurate had Orth's scientific deductions proven that the most delicate instrument could detect no slightest deviation from its prescribed course. It was then that Orthus began to importune the government to permit him to set out with the new craft that was now completed. The authorities held out, however, until the latter part of 2025, when, the experimental ship having been out a year and still showing no deviation from its course, they felt reasonably assured that the success of the venture was certain, and that no useless risk of human life would be involved. The Barsoom required five men properly to handle it, and as had been the custom through many centuries when an undertaking of more than usual risk was to be attempted, volunteers were called for, with the result that fully half the personnel of the International Peace Fleet begged to be permitted to form the crew of five. The government finally selected their men from the great number of volunteers, with the result that once more was I the innocent cause of disappointment and chagrin to Orthus, as I was placed in command with Orphus, two lieutenants, and an ensign completing the roster. The Barsoom was larger than the craft dispatched by the Martians, with the result that we were able to carry supplies for fifteen years. We were equipped with more powerful motors, which would permit us to maintain an average speed of over twelve hundred miles an hour, carrying, in addition, an engine recently developed by Orthus, which generated sufficient power from light to propel the craft at half speed in the event that our other engine should break down. None of us was married, Orthus' abandoned wife having recently died. Our estates were taken under trusteeship by the government. Our farewells were made at an elaborate ball at the White House on December 24, 2025, and on Christmas Day we rose from the landing stage at which the Barsoom had been moored and amid the blare of bands and the shouting of thousands of our fellow countrymen, we arose majestically into the blue. I shall not bore you with dry technical descriptions of our motors and equipment. Suffice it to say that the former were of three types, those which propelled the ship through the air and those which propelled it through ether. The latter, of course, represented our most important equipment and consisted of powerful multiple exhaust separators which isolated the Tubarsumian eighth ray in great quantities, and by exhausting it rapidly earthward, propelled the vessel toward Mars. These separators were so designed that with equal facility they could isolate the earthly eighth ray, which would be necessary for our return voyage. The auxiliary engine, which I mentioned previously, and which was Orthus' latest invention, could be easily adjusted to isolate the eighth ray of any planet or satellite or of the sun itself, thus ensuring us motive power in any part of the universe by the simple expedient of generating and exhausting the eighth ray of the nearest heavenly body. 
a fourth type of generator drew oxygen from the ether while another emanated insulating rays which ensured us a uniform temperature and external pressure at all times their action being analogous to that of the atmosphere surrounding the earth science had therefore permitted us to construct a little world which moved at will through space a little world inhabited by five souls had it not been for orthus presence i could have looked forward to a reasonably pleasurable voyage for west and jay were extremely likable fellows and sufficiently mature to be companionable while young norton the ensign though but seventeen years of age endeared himself to all of us from the very start of the voyage by his pleasant manners his consideration and his willingness in the performance of his duties there were three staterooms aboard the varsoon one of which i occupied alone while west and orthus had the second and jay and norton the third west and jay were lieutenants and had been classmates at the air school they would of course have preferred to room together but could not unless i commanded it or orthus requested it not wishing to give orthus any grounds for offence i hesitated to make the change while orthus never having thought a considerate thought or done a considerate deed in his life could not of course have been expected to suggest it we all messed together west jay and norton taking turns at preparing the meals only in the actual operation of the ship were the lines of rank drawn strictly otherwise we associated as equals nor would any other arrangement have been endurable upon such an undertaking which required that we five be practically imprisoned together upon a small ship for a period of not less than five years we had books and writing materials and games and we were of course in constant radio communication with both earth and mars receiving continuously the latest news from both planets we listened to opera and oratory and heard the music of two worlds so that we were not lacking for entertainment there was always a certain constraint in orthus manner towards me yet i must give him credit for behaving outwardly admirably unlike the others we never exchanged pleasantries with one another nor could i knowing as i did that orthus hated and feeling for him personally the contempt that i felt because of his character intellectually he commanded my highest admiration and upon intellectual grounds we met without constraint or reserve and many were the profitable discussions we had during the first days of what was to prove a very brief voyage it was about the second day that i noticed with some surprise that orthus was exhibiting a friendly interest in norton it had never been orthus way to make friends but i saw that he and norton were much together and that each seemed to derive a great deal of pleasure from the society of the other orthus was a good talker he knew his profession thoroughly and was an inventor and scientist of high distinction norton though but a boy was himself the possessor of a fine mind he had been honor man in his graduating class heading the list of ensigns for that year and i could not help but notice that he was drinking in every word along scientific lines that orthus vouchsafed we had been out about six days when orthus came to me and suggested that inasmuch as west and jay had been classmates and chums they be permitted to room together 
and that he had spoken to Norton, who had said that he would be agreeable to the change, and would occupy West's bunk in Orthus' stateroom. I was very glad for this, for it now meant that my subordinates would be paired off in the most agreeable manner, and as long as they were contented I knew that the voyage, from that standpoint at least, would be more successful. I was, of course, a trifle sorry to see a fine boy like Norton, brought under the influence of Orthus, yet I felt that what little danger might result would be offset by the influence of West and Jay and myself, or counterbalanced by the liberal education which five years' constant companionship with Orthus would be to any man with whom Orthus would discuss freely the subjects of which he was master. We were beginning to feel the influence of the moon rather strongly. At the rate we were travelling, we would pass closest to it upon the twelfth day, or about the sixth of January, 2026. Our course would bring us within about 20,000 miles of the moon, and as we neared it, I believed that the sight of it was the most impressive thing that human eye had ever gazed upon before. To the naked eye it loomed large and magnificent in the heavens, appearing over ten times the size that it does to terrestrial observers, while our powerful glasses brought its weird surface to such startling proximity that one felt that he might reach out and touch the torn rocks of its tortured mountains. This nearer view enabled us to discover the truth or falsity of the theory that has long been held by some scientists that there is a form of vegetation upon the surface of the moon. Our eyes were first attracted by what appeared to be movement upon the surface of some of the valleys, and in the deeper ravines of the mountains. Norton exclaimed that there were creatures there, moving about, but closer observation revealed the fact of the existence of a weird fungus-like vegetation which grew so rapidly that we could clearly discern the phenomena. From the several days' observation which we had at close range, we came to the conclusion that the entire lifespan of this vegetation is encompassed in a single sidereal month. From the spore it developed in the short period of a trifle over twenty-seven days into a mighty plant that is sometimes hundreds of feet in height. The branches are angular and grotesque, the leaves broad and thick, and in the plants which we discerned the seven primary colors were distinctly represented. As each portion of the moon passed slowly into shadow, the vegetation first drooped, then wilted then crumbled to the ground, apparently disintegrating almost immediately into a fine, dust-like powder. At least insofar as our glasses revealed, it quite disappeared entirely. The movement which we discerned was purely that of rapid growth, as there is no wind upon the surface of the moon. Both Jay and Orthus were positive that they discerned some form of animal life, either insect or reptilian. These I did not myself see, though I did perceive many of the broad, flat leaves, which seemed to have been partially eaten, which certainly strengthened the theory that there is other than vegetable life upon our satellite. I presume that one of the greatest thrills that we experienced in this adventure, that was to prove a veritable Pandora's box of thrills, was when we commenced to creep past the edge of the moon, and our eyes beheld for the first time that which no other human eyes had ever rested upon, portions of that two-fifths of the moon's surface which is invisible from the earth. 
we had looked with awe upon mare crisium and locus ominorum sinius roris oceanus procularum and the four great mountain ranges we had viewed at close range the volcanoes of opolonius secchi borda tycho and their mates but all these paled into insignificance as there unrolled before us the panorama of the vast unknown i cannot say that it differed materially from that portion of the moon that is visible to us it was merely the glamour of mystery which had surrounded it since the beginning of time that lent to it its thrill for us here we observed other great mountain ranges and wide undulating plains towering volcanoes and mighty craters and the same vegetation with which we were now become familiar we were two days past the moon when our first trouble developed among our stores were one hundred and twenty quarts of spirits per man enough to allow us each a liberal two ounces per day for a period of five years each night before dinner we had drunk to the president in a cocktail which contained a single ounce of spirits the idea being to conserve our supply in the event of our journey being unduly protracted as well as to have enough in the event that it became desirable fittingly to celebrate any particular occasion toward the third meal hour of the thirteenth day of the voyage orthus entered the mess-room noticeably under the influence of liquor history narrates that under the regime of prohibition drunkenness was common and that it grew to such proportions as to become a national menace but with the repeal of the prohibition act nearly a hundred years ago the habit of drinking to excess abated so that it became a matter of disgrace for any man to show his liquor and in the service it was considered as reprehensible as cowardice in action there was therefore but one thing for me to do i ordered orthus to his quarters he was drunker than I had thought him, and he turned upon me like a tiger. "'You damned cur!' he cried. "'All my life you have stolen everything from me. The fruits of all my efforts you have garnered by chicanery and trickery. And even now, were we to reach Mars, it is you who would be lauded as the hero, not I, whose labor and intellect have made possible this achievement.' but by God we will not reach Mars. Not again shall you profit by my efforts. You have gone too far this time, and now you dare to order me about like a dog and an inferior. I, whose brains have made you what you are. I held my temper, for I saw that the man was unaccountable for his words. Go to your quarters, Orthus, I repeated my command. I will talk with you again in the morning. West and Jay and Norton were present. They seemed momentarily paralyzed by the man's condition and gross insubordination. Norton, however, was the first to recover. Jumping quickly to Orthus's side, he laid his hand upon his arm. Come, sir, he said. And to my surprise, Orthus accompanied him quietly to their stateroom. During the voyage, we had continued the fallacy of night and day, gauging them merely by our chronometers since we moved always through utter darkness surrounded only by a tiny nebula of light produced by the sun's rays impinging upon the radiation from our insulating generator before breakfast therefore on the following morning i sent for orthus to come to my stateroom he entered with a truculent swagger and his first words indicated that 
if he had not continued drinking he had at least been moved to no regrets for his unwarranted attack of the previous evening well he said what in hell are you going to do about it i cannot understand your attitude orthus i told him i have never intentionally injured you when orders from government threw us together i was as much chagrined as you association with you is as distasteful to me as it is to you i merely did as you did obeyed orders i have no desire to rob you of anything but that is not the question now you have been guilty of gross insubordination and of drunkenness i can prevent a repetition of the latter by confiscating your liquor and keeping it from you during the balance of the voyage and an apology from you will atone for the former i shall give you twenty-four hours to reach a decision if you do not see fit to avail yourself of my clemency or this you will travel to mars and back again in irons your decision now and your behaviour during the balance of the voyage will decide your fate upon our return to earth and i tell you orthus that if i possibly can do so i shall use the authority which is mine upon this expedition and expunge from the log the record of your transgressions last night and this morning now go to your quarters your meals will be served there for twenty-four hours and at the end of that time i shall receive your decision meanwhile your liquor will be taken from you he gave me an ugly look turned upon his heel and left my stateroom norton was on watch that night we were two days past the moon west jay and i were asleep in our staterooms when suddenly norton entered mine and shook me violently by the shoulder my god captain he cried come quick commander orthus is destroying the engines i leaped to my feet and followed norton amidships to the engine room calling to west and jay as i passed their stateroom through the bull's-eye in the engine room door which he had locked we could see Orthus working over the auxiliary generator which was to have proven our salvation in an emergency, since by means of it we could overcome the pull of any planet into the sphere of whose influence we might be carried. I breathed a sigh of relief as my eyes noted that the main battery of engines was functioning properly, since, as a matter of fact, we had not expected to have to rely at all upon the auxiliary generator having stored sufficient quantities of the eighth ray of the various heavenly bodies by which we might be influenced to carry us safely throughout the entire extent of the long voyage west and jay had joined us by this time and i now called to orthus commanding him to open the door he did something more to the generator and then arose crossed the engine room directly to the door unbolted it and threw the door open his hair was dishevelled his face drawn his eyes shining with a peculiar light, but with all his expression denoted a drunken elation that I did not at the moment understand. What have you been doing here, Orthus? I demanded. You are under arrest and supposed to be in your quarters. You'll see what I've been doing, he replied truculently, and it's done. It's done. It can't ever be undone. I've seen to that. I grabbed him roughly by the shoulder. What do you mean? Tell me what you have done, or by God I will kill you with my own hands. For I knew, not only from his words, but from his expression, that he had accomplished something which he considered very terrible. The man was a coward, and he quailed under my grasp. You wouldn't dare to kill me, he cried, 
and it don't make any difference. We will all be dead in a few hours. Go and look at your damned compass. End of chapter one. Recording by Thomas Copeland.